I'm Hunter. I'm a senior. Um, we're going to be re, uh, reading, I'll be reading out of Acts 8, 1 through 25. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Well, a few years ago, when Anna, my wife, graduated from UGA, she moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado, and she worked at a place called Village 7 Presbyterian Church. She worked in the youth ministry there, and pretty soon after she moved out there and started work at Village 7, a new pastor or church planner and his wife moved there as well, and their names were Jason and Kara Tippetts, and the idea for Jason and Kara was to come and work at Village 7 for a few years, kind of get acclimated to Colorado, learn the church scene out there, learn the ropes, and then leave Village 7 with a core group of people to plant another church across town. So they had a few years together overlap at Village 7, Anna and they did, and so she got to know them pretty well. And Jason and Kara, I got to know them too and got to see them whenever I was out there visiting Anna. They were perfect for the job. These, these magnetic people. You know, could walk into a coffee shop or a church and get to know everybody. You wanted to be around them. Really neat people. Perfect for the job. And so after a year or two kind of doing those things, learning the ropes, learning Colorado, they, on schedule, a little bit ahead of a schedule, leave and plant this church. And within a couple of months, about 100 people are regularly coming. The church is kind of gaining scene. That's pretty rare for a church plant. 
and it's going really well. One day, uh, around the time when the church plant started, Kara was in the shower and felt a lump in her breast and told her husband, and they just had the, the conversation, well, you know, we should schedule an appointment and get that checked out. She did the next week, and they waited a week or so on the results, and when they came back, she found out she had breast cancer, and worse, she found out she had a very aggressive kind of breast cancer, it was stage four. And so, for the next two and a half years, Kara and Jason drove her around, and her friends drove her around from treatment to treatment, doctor to doctor, specialist to specialist, trying to treat and kill this cancer. And nothing was working. None of the treatments were working. And so there was a day, two and a half years into the battle, that the doctors had the conversation with Jason and Kara that nobody wants to be having with your doctor. When your doctor says all of the tools in our medical toolbox have been used, there's nothing else that we have that could help you. Now's the time when we need to start looking in the hospice. Their diagnosis of how much longer she had was pretty dead on. And she passed away about a month after that conversation. While Kara was dying, she had a blog. It was called Mundane Faithfulness. And this blog gained a following. And when I say a following, I mean tens of thousands of people started following her daily updates of parenting. She has four kids. They were my, the, kids, the age of my kids when she died. Of parenting, of being a pastor's wife, of cancer, of diagnosis, of life with Jesus. And Kara was one of those people who just had a way. It wasn't Christian cliches. It wasn't that stuff that just makes you roll your eyes. You're like... Skim, 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 great. Kara's writing about the Lord and his presence, his kindness, his softness, his goodness to her in the midst of this season of her life was compelling. That's why it gained such a following. She ended up turning that blog into a book that was published right before she died. She gained such a following, Joanna Gaines heard about her and flies in from Waco to redesign her living room as a gift to the family. Ellie Holcomb comes and does a private concert in the living room for Jason, Kara, their kids, and their caretakers. When she died, Village 7 hosted the funeral. The family had asked that they would live stream it because there were some distant family members who couldn't get there for health reasons. And word got out about the live stream link and 17,000 people followed the live stream of her funeral. This past March, Netflix released an hour and a half documentary about Kara and Jason called The Long Goodbye. And Millions of people have seen this documentary now, and hundreds of millions of people around the world have access to this documentary, where Jason and Kara talk in such weighty and sad and real and astonishing ways about a complicated God with a very simple love and a very simple presence. Kara and Jason thought they were moving from North Carolina to Colorado to plant a church to expand Jesus' kingdom. And they had no idea how much Jesus would use them to expand his kingdom. And they no, had no idea that the way that Jesus would expand his kingdom through them was through a long, slow death and saying goodbye. 
There are stark realities in Kara's story that are present in the passage that Hunter read as well. You haven't met Kara, but you've heard me talk about her and you know her a little bit better now. Some of you know Kara's in your own world, your own life. They were in your church. They're your mom or your dad. But none of us know Stephen. And Stephen is who Hunter started the passage reading about. Stephen is a name we've already encountered. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen is one of the men full of the Spirit, wise, godly, who was chosen to be one of the church's first deacons, the servants of the widows. And then in Acts 7, we learn a little bit more about Stephen that I'll tell you in a minute. But this guy, Stephen, what we can gather about him from what we know in the Bible about Stephen is that he is one of those people, when he's in the room, you just feel safe. He's that kind of a leader. I'll go wherever he goes. I'll die on whatever hill he wants me to go die on. I felt safe around Stephen. I felt warmer around Stephen. I felt like God was more real when Stephen was around. He was as courageous as a lion, but as tender as a child. He was the one in charge of serving the little old widows. The widows wanted Stephen to bring them dinner every night. Stephen was this big-hearted, soft-hearted, courageous, godly, humble, wise, beautiful man. And in Acts chapter 7, that Stephen is brutally murdered by a mob who was intent on snuffing out the church of Jesus Christ in its infant stage, a mob that included the Apostle Paul, or who would eventually become the Apostle Paul who would turn the world upside down forever. And Stephen is sitting there, and it's a pretty graphic description in Acts chapter 7 of the church's first martyr. As fist-sized stone after stone is hurled at his head, and as Stephen feels the first time his jawbone breaks, so the first time an eye socket is crushed, and he goes blind, and now he only hears the stones coming at his head. And as he feels his brain swelling and he knows the end is near, do you want to know what Stephen was thinking? And do you want to know what Stephen was saying? We know. Because the end of Acts chapter 7 tells us. Stephen was saying, look, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he says, Lord, receive my spirit. And unbelievably, he says, and Lord, do not hold this against them right before a rock hits his trachea and just shuts it down. He says, Jesus, don't hold this against them. And he dies. Here's the interesting thing. The very next words out of Luke's mouth as he gets into Acts chapter 8 is that the gospel goes to Samaria. This doesn't mean anything to us. Another Jewish town, whatever. Samaria was not the place you'd ever expect the gospel to go. Samaria and the conversion of Samaria, the fact that Samaria was filled with the apostles' teaching would be like hearing Pyongyang or Moscow or Tehran or Beijing was filled with the gospel and people were receiving it with soft hearts. It's not what you'd expect. Samaria is not a place you send your church's mission trip. Why? You'd expect no result, no impact. Nobody would give you the time of day. This is why it was such a big deal when Jesus gives the parable of the good Samaritan. It's why it's such a big deal when he goes through Samaria and meets with the woman at the well. It's scandalous. Nobody expects anything from Samaria. 
And Acts chapter 8 starts with the gospel taking over Samaria like wildfire. Jesus had told his church to go to Samaria. Remember the Great Commission? Go into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. If you've been here the past few weeks, you've heard about the gospel in Jerusalem. We talked about it. You've heard about the gospel in Jerusalem. We've talked about it. This is the first time we see the gospel in Samaria, this hard, rocky soil that nobody would want to plant a seed in. The church had heard this, but for whatever reason, maybe just time, maybe resistance, maybe just not believing it would be effective, the church had not gone there yet. But now we see the church going there. Now we see the gospel taking root and lives being changed and people for the first time hearing that the only God that is is a God of grace and compassion and forgiveness. How did it get there and how did the gospel move in that direction? It's a very timely question because aren't there still Moscow's and Tehran's and Kabul's and other places still today? And aren't there some of us who have a heart like the people in those cities? And aren't there pockets of campus that are like those cities? People who, not only, it's not just that they're resistant to the gospel, they're just completely uninterested. Haven't heard about it, don't care about it. Isn't this relevant to wonder how does the gospel penetrate the impenetrable places in the world and in our hearts? This is how God did it. He unilaterally pushed his church and the message of Jesus into these places. How did he do that? Unilaterally, by the way, means sovereignly. He did it by himself. He didn't ask permission. He didn't say, let's do this together. He did it. How did he do it? At the end of a spear. And that's how the passage starts. And Saul, or sorry, the, the, the second part of verse one, and there arose on that day, the day of Stephen's martyrdom, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And what happened? What was the effect of that persecution? What was the effect of the world starting to poke the church with knives? The effect was they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It's not just that they were scattered all around the region. They were talkative. They had a lot to tell the people about as they went to these places. So God moves his church into these places, often at the end of a spear. If the church of Jesus, this new humanity, he is remaking humanity in his church, if if the church of Jesus is a wildfire, and if the spirit is the one who lights it on fire, lights people on fire, persecution and suffering are the winds that blow the fire in new directions. Suffering and hardship and persecution are the winds that blow the work of God and the work of his grace deeper into your heart. That's how this fits together. Suffering and persecution deepen the work of God's grace in you and they scatter the work of God's grace around you. Open any page of church history over the past 2,000 years and ask yourself, what caused this? What caused that? What caused this revival? What caused this transformation of a country? or a people group, or a tribe? What got the gospel to Africa, or China, or America? Persecution, 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 hardship, trial, oppression. It's literally why you were raised in a Christianized country. Why did people come here? Of course the explorers founded this, but who populated this? 
Christians who were persecuted in England, Germany, and France who were fleeing for their lives. And when they came, they talked, and they shared, and they spread. And that's why you grew up in a culture like you grew up, because of persecution. That's why China, the church in China, the church in India, the church in Africa, the church in Latin America is spreading like wildfire now. We are the itty-bitty minority in global Christianity, and we're getting smaller, and they're exploding off the charts. Why? They're the persecuted church, and it's in the persecuted church that God does some of his best and sweetest work. Tertullian was one of these early church fathers. He was a persecuted Christian, and he said this, Kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed of the church is the blood of Christians. The more the world tries to stamp out the church, the more the church spreads. The more the message of a resurrected Messiah who loves sinners and gives attention to them and provides a way for them to to go back to God opens up. What drives the church outward is often persecution. And what drives God's grace more deeply into you is often hardship and pain. It's often things that you never would have wanted, experiences that you've never asked for. And those are the mysterious and brilliant places the Spirit is slowly, gradually, methodically doing His best work and strongest, most lasting work in your life is in places you never asked Him to and you never would have wanted Him to but it is producing the change that you want and that you need. That's true at an individual level and it's true at a corporate level. So what do we do with this? What's the application of this, these first two points? What do we do? I think what we do is we, we have x-ray vision. This passage gives you x-ray vision. Jesus gives you x-ray vision and he says, you've got to understand. You've got to be really clear-minded about this, the hard places in your life, the diagnoses your parents have, the, the stuff that keeps you up at night, makes you lose sleep, makes rooms hard to walk into you, whatever it is, the things that will corporately affect us as Christians in the culture and in the society, those are the places you've got to have your x-ray vision turned on in because you've got to see that there is more than meets the eye specifically in those places as the Spirit does a work that nobody would expect. Look, if the Roman emperors had realized that their attempt to snuff out the church would guarantee its arrival on the furthest shores from Rome, they wouldn't have touched the early church. If authorities in China today had realized that their, their attempt to snuff out the church in China would have spread it to every region of China and deepened it, they would have never touched it. The devil always overplays his hand. He is shrewd, he is smart, he is ingenious as well, but he has an Achilles heel. He doesn't know when to stop. And he he hasn't got God figured out yet. He goes for the crucifixion of Jesus, and in that moment, all of humanity is redeemed. All of creation is renewed. And those who see their need of this Jesus and what he did all have access to God. No longer orphans, no longer aliens, but brought back into the family of God. He overplayed his hand. He tries to snuff out the Christian church. He tries to attack you, and he always always overplays his hand, and it blows up in his face. The problem is time. That's our problem. We're not alive long enough to see how his hand plays out, right? 
We're just not alive that long. We're alive for like a little snippet of the card game. And so we say, look at it. Look at, look at the pain. Look at the suffering. Look at the decline of the influence of the church in this country or that country. Friends, if we were alive just a little longer, so much more would make sense. So much more would make sense to our finite little minds. If we, if we had a little bit more context of our own lives and our own stories, if Kara had another week and she saw what Jesus did in such a tender way through such a hard plan, she'd understand. I think she understood long before that. She had her x-ray vision goggles on through her two and a half years of saying goodbye and dying. Jason had his x-ray goggles on. Stephen had his x-ray goggles on. Do you have yours on? I want to say this slightly. This is not, this is, there's no segue. This is an aside. Sometimes I'll point out in passages other reasons I believe the Bible is the word of God. It's true. It's authoritative. It's not something that you and I wrote, but it's something the Spirit inspired through people like us to write down. If you're fabricating a religion, is this ever what you would conceive as the way this religion would be spread through the world? Hey, here's the way that this new following, this new movement that we're inventing, trying to get power and kind of get our ideology spread out, the way it's going to be spread is through our death, through our suffering, through our trials, through our tears, through our groaning, through our weakness, through our oppression. Who would ever write that? Nobody. You look at the man-made religions. We have a wide catalog of through the ages what we have come up with as attempts to get back to God. And the way those religions are propagated is through violence, through promises of personal payoff, through political influence, through all these other reasons that make perfect sense to us of become a part of the club, become an insider, get all these goodies. Not with the Christian gospel. Pick up your cross and follow him to our death and the redemption that happens through that. Reason number 10,000, I believe the Bible could not have come from man but must have come from somewhere else. That was a little treat. I indulged myself, sorry. Our last point. This same persecution and suffering that, that deepens the work of God's grace in your heart and scatters the work of God's grace around you also reveals the truth of God's grace in you. Is it really there? Or is it fake spirituality? Suffering, hardship, and persecution smokes out of your heart whatever is really there. And it introduces you to what's really going on inside of you. And it reveals to you, do you really love Jesus? Do you really believe that he is merciful, that he has given his life, that you might have life, that he has taken your sins upon himself? Or are you using him for some other payoff? This is the stuff that reveals our hearts, that draws it out into the open and shows our true motivations for why we're following God. And I hope this is even obvious by now. I haven't talked about Simon the Magician yet. We're going to spend the last 10 minutes talking about Simon. But the more you hear about Kara, about Stephen, about the early church, the more what Simon is doing in this passage should shock you. How far he was from Jesus in reality, even though he had all the outward markings of a really encouraging story. He professed faith in Jesus. He followed Jesus. He was baptized. He wanted what the apostles had. I mean, this is the stuff you're like, yes, 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 yes. Suffering, persecution, hardship come into Simon's life. And you see, there's just nothing there. Who was this guy? 
Simon was the Kim Kardashian of Samaria. Plenty of other historians beyond the Bible make reference to Simon the Samaritan. Here he's called Simon the Magician. His craft, his trade, his influence, the reason for his fame was, I don't know how. I don't know if it was illusions. It was probably something more than illusions. Simon was able to do things like heal people or put curses on people. Or at least the people believed he was able to do that. That was his craft. And he had a name that was known at that time as a divine name. Calls it, this man is the power of God that is called great. That's a clunky phrase for us. But in Greek, it basically means the divine one. They saw Simon as kind of an incarnation of God himself. So he has this huge following, and we know because Luke is, is good to repeat it three times, that Simon, Simon loves attention, right? Simon loved that people paid attention to Simon. He loved it. He ate it up. That was his food. It was his water. It kept him going. Attention. Eyes are on me. His magic was a means to the end. Simon loved it. So, this wildfire of the gospel of the message of Jesus, able to change your life, able to reconcile you to God, that went through Samaria. Simon apparently got caught on fire too. He's caught up in the movement. He gets baptized. He goes down to the river. He gets initiated into this early church. And when the apostles come to town, he has a lot of questions for them. What it seems like Simon wanted was a way to get the attention back. Because what was the suffering in Simon's life? What was the persecution? Well, this odd thing, the attention left Simon. Philip, Stephen's right-hand man, comes to town. And he's preaching what? The same thing we say every single week, the message of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and what it means for you. Philip goes around preaching that. The fire spreads, the fire spreads. Guess what? Luke says now the people are paying attention, not just to Philip, but to the Jesus Philip is talking about. And these, these disciples are doing signs. They're healing people. They're raising people. Uh, crippled people are being restored. Blind people are getting their sight back. And Simon is freaking out because now all the people are following Philip and the disciples. And this is his bread and this is his life and he's losing it. And so Simon has a question that he comes and asks the gospel. And it's motivated because Simon was, for the first time in his little craft, his local kingdom was kind of crumbling. His fame was going away because he was being decentered, not again by Philip, but by the message of Jesus. As Jesus is pulled to the center of everything, Simon spins out, not in the center. And he comes to this question to the apostles how do I get in on what you have? And he pulls out a bag of silver. And he says, what's the price? How much do I have to pay to get what you guys have in the spirit of Jesus? And again, was Simon interested in the spirit? Was Simon interested in Jesus? Was Simon interested in humbling himself before God and finally being honest? Was he interested in all the things we've been talking about the past month? No, 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 no. Simon was interested in his paycheck continuing to arrive. He was interested in the likes counting up. He was interested in the spotlight still being on him. He wanted a piece of what they had, and he thought he had to get it. He wants some of that. Now, this odd thing happens that we need to point out. 
the apostles come to town and the thing that gets Simon's attention, the thing that they do that he says and says, I want some of that. Where'd you buy that? Who gave you that? What, what vendor do I need to contact to get that stuff you just did? The event that sparked this whole interest was the apostles come to town, they lay hands on these people. And it says this weird phrase that these people were converted, they were baptized, but they had not been baptized by the Holy Spirit. My goodness, so much ink has been spilled on that verse. And so many denominations exist today because of this verse. What is going on and why did these people become Christians and were converted but had not been baptized by the Spirit? Come and talk to me later if you want to know more about this. We're about to do the five-sentence version of this. We know from the rest of Scripture that when a person becomes a Christian, you have all of the Spirit in that moment. The Spirit of the Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus indwells you, empowers you. You have all of Him. So what's going on in this situation? Do you remember what I told you Samaria was like? Jews had nothing to do with Samaria. People who thought they were serious with God looked at the Samaritans and thought they were just throwaways. And so one time in history, God does something unique and off the beaten path that he'll never do again. And these people become Christians and they are baptized and they profess faith in Jesus, but they are not indwelled by the Spirit. Why? God orchestrated things in a way where the apostles themselves will walk their way into Samaria and put their hands on Samaritans and say, brothers, and they will pray for their brothers and sisters. And this sweet, unifying spirit of Jesus will come into them. It had to be signaled. It had to happen that way to tell the Jews and the Samaritans and all of us since then, there are no two tracks, two ethnic tracks in the Christian church. There is one church, one Jesus, one baptism, one spirit. The apostles had to come and they had to touch them and they had to pray for them. And they had to say, we, brothers and sisters, have the Spirit. That's what's going on there. Should you expect that to happen in your life? No. The second you profess faith in Jesus, you are alive. You are forgiven. You have all of the Spirit animating your life and driving your life forward. But that is what Simon saw and he mistook it for magic. And he said, whatever you just did to them, I want you to give me that power so that I can do it to other people. Why? For attention. This is kind of the last thought we end on. I'll flesh this out. Two or three minutes will be done. But Mark Sayers talks about a modern phenomenon. It's our connection point between Simon's motivation. What drove Simon to Jesus is also what drives a lot of us to Jesus. And it's got to be smoked out of our hearts if we're ever going to deal with it and repent of it. And what it is is this. It's a self-driven gospel. It's a God is not the end I seek, but the stuff God might do for me is the end I seek. I'm not really after Jesus. I'm not really after owning my guilt and my distance and my alienation from God and seeing Jesus span that gap. What I'm after is help on my tests or help getting a husband or a wife or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or help or money. That's what I'm after. That's what I love. That's what I pay attention to. This guy, Jesus, might be able to help me get it. So Mark Sayers says this. He says it's not actually that ancient, not actually just that modern, but it's ancient too. What we are experiencing today in this culture is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and massager of the personal will. 
And then he goes on after that to say, Gnosticism is an attempt to retain the fruits of Christianity and the solace of faith while maximizing the individual's authority. He's calling this Gnosticism. If you know anything about philosophy, it was what was going on in this day in the first century. And he says it's back. It never really left. And what Gnosticism does is it puts you in the center and God becomes your servant. He becomes the massager of whatever agenda you have for him. He's the genie that blesses whatever dream you have of him. You've seen the same stats I have. Somewhere between 40 and 60 people raised in the evangelical church, they say, when you get to college, abandon their faith and leave it. I've thought a lot about those stats, and I don't know if this is true. This is my hypothesis. I think the conclusion from that stat is that 40 to 60% of people who thought they were Christians and knew Jesus never knew him. And when, when pressure comes and oppression and persecution and hardship and trial, it smokes that out of their hearts. And they say, this was never really real to begin with. I don't believe him. He's not there. What it does is it reveals to them, to us, I'd say I was one of these people. What it reveals to us is I was never alive in the first place. I never knew him in the first place. I was using him to get to Ben. He blessed my plans. He blessed my dreams. And what God did for me and is very kind to do for people like Simon, as Peter confronts him, or you, or your friends, is very patient to let this smoke out of your heart your motivations for your spirituality, your motivations for moving towards Jesus or coming to RUF or church. He lets you see that in front of your eyes. And he says, what is driving you to me? Is it a deep, genuine sense that there is this compatibility between my mercy which I love to give and your brokenness and your guilt and your shame which is true or is it some other agenda you'll hear me say in RUF if you've been around here long enough that the gospel can be boiled down to this God meets you on your turf and on his terms he meets you on your turf with his grace but always on his terms Never on your terms, never on my terms. He is so stubborn. He is so non-negotiable. He, he has never met a person on their terms and never will he. He has always met people on their turf. You're in America. The gospel has preached to you in America. Some of you are in difficult places in life right now and he is preaching good news to you in that difficult space. He has brought it to your doorstep always on your turf in Samaria, to the ends of the earth, in Rome, in Athens, Greece, in Athens, Georgia but always on his terms. You can never control him. You can never buy what he has that is a gift. You can never manipulate him. You can never fool him. You can never twist the truth with him. You can never hide from him. You can never come with your contract written up. If you do this, then I'll do that. No. That's a tr it's a tragic mistake, friends. But here's the good news of Jesus. God will meet you on his terms. His terms is put your money away. His terms is do you really want to orient your entire life around attention from other people? Is that going to redeem you the way you think it is? And he says my terms is I'll give you me, which means I'll give you your life back. And I'll give you this community. I'll give you this church. I'll give you a whole renewed and recreated world through Jesus, through whom I'm renewing all things. He will meet you on your turf, absolutely. Don't you go walking towards him. Don't you try to find God. He is finding you. 
But don't ever come to him. Don't ever come to him on your terms. His terms are so much better. It's free. It's full. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that the message that you have sent around the world is that men and women can know you. People who have been strangers to you their whole life, who did not grow up in households where you were talked about or whatever, people with hard hearts can know you again and see you again and love you again and be loved by you and be made clean by you. That is the message that you have poked a spear in the back of your church to spread around the world. We believe that you are interested in all of us hearing this. We see you working through history to make sure this announcement landed in our ears. Now would you give us the grace to respond to it? Now would you give us the grace to repent of these other gospels that we want you to bless? Let those die and let us rise up to you, the true one, the true giver of grace. Show us that your terms are sweet and free and powerful and good. We ask this in your name, amen.